Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by Stephanie Quick. She is a writer, an investigator of the weird, uh, ranging from areas such as sex magic to synchronicities to UFOs to everything. And if you follow her on Twitter at Wandering Britches, you know how much of a fashion icon she is. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. That's really sweet. No, I'm excited to be here today. It's it's weird because when I, I I wanted to do an episode about this particular incident, and then I kept thinking in my head, who am I going to have on for this? Who am I going to have on for this? And 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 for some reason, your name popped into into my head. And after that, there was just this wave of synchronicities that happened that just made it seem like this was fated to happen. It had to happen. So uh, not only are we going to be talking about the a Troncas incident, but also the synchronicities that, that uh, have brought this episode together. Yeah, it's um, it, this is one of those uh, things that interests me. I've been interested in synchronicities and uh, the paranormal since I was I was little, but then synchronicities, especially about the last twenty years, and I've been uh, engaging with them in terms of trying to run like synchronicity experiments. We specifically go through a period of trying to like uh, drum them up and kind of see what it what happens and what it can tell you about the phenomenon or about yourself, but. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about the paranormal is that, um, as Phil from Weird Studies puts it, it tends to tell on you, right? <laughs> right. So it, it, to me, it has that intersection with sex magic in that um, the erotic force is always trying to break the bounds and it's revealing, I mean, like, uh, like it was the scarlet letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? That mm. everything would have been on the down low, except for, well, people get pregnant and then all what everyone's been up to comes to light. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> because the erotic is not, is, is an anti-structural force in society and life. I mean, that's the whole point of sex is to make something new and instead of the same old thing, we could just be like clones or like amoebas, just like kind of potting off and just have that. I mean, that could make plenty of life, but you don't get the, the new excitement. But I think the paranormal in its relationship with the, the trickster um, really emphasizes as well this uh, bringing up of hidden, taboo, personal, emotionally charged um, material. Like you think of a lot of the tropes of the, uh, let's say, uh, the ghost that comes back from the grave to point the finger at its murderer, the murderer, mm -hmm. right? The Teresita, I think it, Teresa Batista. Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a very intense experience where a woman's uh, co-worker had been murdered and the co-worker came to her in dreams and, and pointed them towards uh, actually evidence that this uh, another person who I believe they all worked in the hospital had murdered her. Um, and this is like a classic trope going back hundreds of years, ghosts uh, pointing to buried treasure or to hidden wills, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, and then you see, uh, I think that uh, 
in the Mothman prophecies is kind of a, a funny aspect of this is you get these uh, UFOs showing up in lover's lanes yep. and pe- people getting sunburns uh, from exposure to the light from the UFO and conjunctivitis. And uh, he kind of puts it a little mildly, but you know, if people are out there naked, right. And getting sunburns mm. in all these places, it's like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> Who are you with? <laughs> or are you naked? Right. It's like 1960, whatever. Right. So it's like revealing these things that people like to keep quiet or that yeah. are taboo. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I feel like, cause there's a lot of um, push towards normalizing the paranormal, which I think on the whole is very uh, admirable pursuit. And I think there's a lot we could do to help people interact with all these phenomena um, in a way where they can maintain their emotional and uh, material stability, social stability mm-hmm. um, more than can, cause you know, we, anyone listening to the show knows you have a lot of people. I thought your recent show about Carl Higdon was very good just to show how everything, all your stability is just like shattered just to the nature of this experience and people can get, have it be uh, really bad. And I'm interested in what can we do to help make this so it doesn't have to be as bad for people. Um, yeah. This happens uh, classically with like near-death experiences as well. But I think that there's something inherently shattered about the paranormal that just it wants to shake things up and it's going to be hard even if you normalize it you know yeah absolutely uh and and even with the carl hagen case and i think what's interesting and what i totally left out of that that i forgot to mention because uh it was leo sprinkle that did the hypnosis on that case Mm -hmm. when he specifically talked about the quote-unquote craft he talked about it as if it was an extra dimensional space, but also that it would move like a spaceship would. So uh, that was it, it, it in that area, you know, crossing the bounds, it kind of just like blew my mind and I completely left it out of the episode. <laughs> now stuff like that. I mean, that's the type of thing where you, I mean, you're going to have like what, like an ontological epistemological crisis. Cause it's like, yeah. how can this exist? Right. And I experienced it. Right. Right. And with this case in particular, the Trancas incident, it's um, it's supposedly one of the inspirations that Steven Spielberg used for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, though I couldn't really find any other information other than, you know, some UFO investigators kind of mentioning it uh, in like certain programs and in certain articles and stuff like that. And I think it definitely could be uh an, an influence on the film just given how um how influential this case is and yet how at the same time how little it's known outside of the united states or outside of argentina it's definitely not as well known in the united states i would say but mm-hmm. um this case is it, it took place on october 21st 1963 on the Santa Teresa ranch in Trancas. And it involves um, the, 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 um, the way that people and and investigators tell, talk about this case. It seems to be a very watered down version, what you get now, but uh, in a 1971 article written by Oscar A. Galindez and, Mm -hmm. and Oscar Galindez 
man, he <laughs> he formed a UFO research group with his dad. And like, I so like I want to do that now, you know, I, or at least I, I wish my dad was around so I, we could go hunt UFOs together because it's just like, you know. Just well, and this is and this is getting towards part of the the synchronicity about mm-hmm. this, um, because this whole, uh, to me, a lot of what I notice about this case is it's centered on family, and a mother and a baby, and mm-hmm. the, the grandparents are there, so it's a very uh, family experience. Um, but when you recommended this case to me, the first thing I thought was, "Oh, Chalkus." Well. I, uh, several years ago, I moved to Napa, California to live with my mom because she had a very bad back fracture and was moving her house. And so I came in and since then I've lived with her, um, she's getting a little older and her, her skeleton is not what it should be, (laughs) but, um, yeah. So, and I never heard the name, uh, Chonkas anywhere before, except for it's one of the main roads in the town of Napa. And, um, yeah, and I spent a lot of time along there because that's where we have the Queen of the Valley Hospital, right? Named after the Virgin Mary. Um, mm-hmm. And all her doctors and everything are really along Troncus. So I thought that was interesting. Then, as you said, this takes place in um, fall of 1963. Yep. I don't know why my dog is going crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, but I noticed that right away because... Uh, it mentions first in the article that the main uh, witness, her husband is in the Air Force. My brother is retired Air Force. And um, he actually had lived with my mom in Napa for a while too. And I thought, huh, so I had him in mind. And then as I'm reading along that, uh, this incident took place just like about two months after he was born, which is interesting. And then later on in the article, his actual birthday is in there, the month and day. So these type of things start happening that uh, made it seem kind of like more personally related to me. Let's see. This is the, this is the trouble because we talk about these things revealing hidden information and I don't want to be giving out, uh, you know, like all my family's name. I mean, to to verify this stuff, I sent you my driver's license and a piece of mail addressed (laughs) to me and my current address. (laughs) You did. It felt, it felt kind of like someone submitting an application for something. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Um, (laughs) But you know, you know, I mean, it's like, you can say, yeah, Hey, that's my birthday. But then, you know, right. Absolutely. So so that's (laughs) the thing is when people say, well, you, you know, this is one of my pet peeves. Well, you know, synchronicities are okay, but the symbolism, it's also personal. It's like, yeah, this is personal, but verifiable, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, yeah. So I didn't know that it was an influence. I've actually never seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You really haven't? <laughs> really? Speaking of scandalous information that comes <laughs> to life. scandalous now. You have, you have set this podcast into a tizzy right now no i'm just kidding but uh it's um i i've seen it twice i think i i but like uh as someone who has like read too many cases uh you can kind of see the influences in in certain areas and stuff and and i think you can see the influence of this case on certain uh scenes in the film um 
because uh, from what I understand and from what um, Mark O'Connell's biography of J. Allen Hynek, uh, the Close Encounters man, brought up, um, Spielberg supposedly talked to not only Valet and Hynek, but he allegedly talked to Lonnie Zamora and a few other UFO witnesses. Uh, so just given the case uh, just like the case histories that he would have. It's really not surprising that, you know, a case like this would end up on his table. But um, the three main witnesses that they always talk about in this case, uh, Yoli de Valle Moreno, Argentina Moreno de Chavez, and uh, a uh, domestic servant named Dora Martina Guzman. They're usually like singled out as like the three main witnesses in this case. And they do, play a significant part but uh when oscar galindez and uh, a couple of other investigators went back interviewed members of the family seven years later what they found was that it wasn't just these three it was practically the entire family that was living yeah. in, in this uh you know on the ranch at the time saw this entire at least most of this event take place not only that the one of the ufos in fact the UFO that they call the mothership was only like 15 feet outside of their house, just like hovering above the ground, which is that would that's unnerving as hell. <laughs> and I have to say some of the observations that these people made, I thought were uh, very precise and uh, very canny, especially given um, because the main witness was a young mother was like, a, I think, 28 or something. And she had a babe in arms mm -hmm. and. You know, so they're panicking, running through the house, trying to figure out what's going on, protect the baby, go out and see what the heck is going on there. And I, I was really impressed with the type of observations about like the, the particular properties of the light that was being mm. uh, cast by this, that people were able to make in those very uh, trying circumstances, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the This event starts kind of around 7 p.m. with the evening meal. Uh it wasn't long after they had started eating that their power actually went out. They had a uh, substation on their property, which uh, just judging from the article kind of supplied power for a bunch of people in the area. It was owned by the family, but um, they had all turned in early that night because, uh, because they lost power. So um, Yoli was still awake uh, when the rest of the family had gone to bed, uh, she had just had her newborn baby and she was waiting for a feeding at 930. And uh, Dora Martina Guzman, the domestic servant, she saw that she was still up and she knocked on her door and she was immediately frightened. She struggled to kind of vocalize what she was terrified of. And, and she kind of had just excused herself for a minute before uh, you know, quickly coming back, saying that she could see these lights coming from their back courtyard. And she she continued to have difficulty kind of putting these lights into uh, perspective at first um, because there was no sign of storm clouds and sky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these kind of these lights would appear and disappear in intervals and stuff. So. Uh, Dora Martina was actually threatening to leave, uh, you know, with many of her chores still undone, I guess. And um, this prompted Yoli and uh, her sister Yolanda 
who was living with the uh, her parents to go out to the courtyard. And to the far left, toward the Belgrano railway line, the three witnesses saw two lights that were connected by this long tube. Um, and when you see the uh, sketch that I'm going to include in the, in the show notes of this thing, um, they can appro- see approximately 40 silhouettes moving within this tube of light. And when I had John Tenney on to cover the Catman Batman of Argentina, we talked about how there were these sightings of what they called train-like objects uh, going back into uh, the 60s, like 1962. And this kind of fits in, I would say it would fit into that structural framework, especially when you look at the sketch, because it does look like a, a giant like train, like uh, almost kind of like a monorail type thing in which you, you know, these witnesses, uh, these like figures are inside of it doing a bunch of things. It's a very, it's a very weird looking sketch. It's, it's creepy. And I don't know why, I don't know why I've I've just been really kind of like cosmically mystically inclined today. Uh, But um, I was just really uh, struck by the whole thing of you know you have this this new mother and her father's not there her father's like or not the father of the her child is not there right he's in the air Mm. force right he's like up in the sky are we getting a theme here right right um because of how much uh in especially later ufo lore there's a whole idea of like hybrid children and and the union between the the earth people and the sky people um and uh because the it that sketch is very weird to me because it, it's very technological looking right yes it, it lo- yep. it like at the same time it really looks uh very phallic with a lot of these little beings in there just like in the middle ages like the sperms coming out, right <laughs> right yeah no it's absolutely. like the glowing sky coming to impregnate and uh, the main witnesses, I think Dora Martina, she was only in her, she's like 15 or 17 or something. Yeah. Yeah. She she's was a teenager. A teenager, um, which is interesting that she was so freaked out that she just wanted to bug out, you know, even though she's just like, you know, a very young woman saying, you know, fuck this noise. <laughs> I'm going to go out there in the wilderness. Yep. Um, Cause they were, I think they were uh, more or less isolated, but yeah. So it's like, there's this, um, on the one hand, it's very technological, but then it also has this, uh, these real themes of um, babies and, and the whole kind of lurking in the background. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Now that I'm looking at the sketch again, really, um, I mm-hmm. would definitely say that the penisy is definitely a word that comes to mind. Well, double headed, no less. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's like the glowing sky is coming at you. Yeah, I would. I would scream too. <laughs> I'm. The more I think about, the more I'm impressed with these young young women and their fortitude in the face of these uh, cosmic forces. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Like, and and the thing is, is that in most of the retellings of this case that mm-hmm. I've ever read or I've ever seen, they totally leave this part of it out every mm-hmm. time. So I, I don't know why. I don't think it really subtracts from the credibility of the, the witnesses or uh, the events in this case, but it's just like, 
it, it's it's interesting because it kind of takes it from a you know close encounter of the second kind uh to a close encounter of the third kind which uh you know fits with the theme uh, if it really was used as inspiration for the movie and so they see these these like uh, they describe them as normal human looking figures, mm-hmm. just like passing back and forth, walking by each other. It, it's very, it's just very strange uh, in, in terms of like UFO witnesses watching humanoid beings doing strange things on crafts. This one is just very it's hard to put into words because I I've never come across anything like this before. It's yeah. I, I I don't even know how to sum it up. It's just, it it seems very symbolic in a way, even from the description itself. Yeah. Cause it's like, usually you just see kind of like, it seems like a lot of the reports are just like a pod or kind of a bubble thing. And you just see a couple figures. What was the one um, in Pow Pow New Guinea, I think. And the guy who didn't have his glasses on. Oh, yeah, yeah. the um, the William Gill. Yeah. Yeah. In that instance, there was like a lot, I think, of figures on the craft. There was like four, I want to say, at at maximum. They, you know, but but I mean, it was over the course of two to three nights. So, yeah. um, But like. But these are like a crowd. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely a crowd that uh, is just showing up on this. this here ranch you know it's um a perfect time to show up uh you know disturb disturb people it's basically yeah like people are trying to sleep you couldn't have picked a better time all right i guess let's shut the power off so you turn in and then wake you up it also reminds me too of um like a lot of uh let's say uh, medieval or uh, renaissance paintings uh, where you have um, like a a picture of hell or heaven or something. And it's just like the legions and legions and legions of creatures in there doing, doing all their things. Yep. Yep. I can, I can, yeah, I can definitely vision that uh, out in my brain. I'm sure I'll dream about it tonight or something. Uh, Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So like, uh, to get a better view of this, they actually had to like drop to their knees so they could see underneath the vegetation because uh, it's kind of interesting the way that the property is kind of set up uh, because their their house is basically surrounded by a semicircle of trees. Um, but uh, the sisters briefly return returned to their room so they could get dressed, uh, go out there and get a better look. Uh, they retreat to flashlight. And the Colt 38, because, I mean, you, they they were kind of under the impression at first that it was maybe like uh, guerrilla fighters coming uh, onto their property or, you know, like poachers or something like that. Yeah. But um, y- Yoli tiptoed to Argentina's room and asked her to look after her son while she was gone. And you know, Argentina's just like imploring her not to go out there. You know, it, it really could be gorillas, saboteurs, you know, whatever responsible. But uh, Yoli was quick to refuse. And that was when Argentina moved outside briefly to see the lights for herself. 
and she cried out in fear, saying that she could see machines near the house. Uh, oh, that's and, so creepy sounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like it either. I, I don't. I would encourage people just at this point to say um, the uh, Flying Saucer Review uh, article you you linked me to. If people want to take a look at those nice uh, sketches there of the craft and a, a map of the incident and everything, it gives you some insight into. Um, how their observations were made and, and what was going on there. And it's, like you say, it's, yeah, I don't want machines <laughs> next to the house. No, no. And, like, you, you see, like, it, you know, so the, the way that they have it laid out, uh, figure one is kind of this uh, layout of the house and everything like that. And I, I'm assuming that this this line right here is kind of, is a, is a gate. Uh, a fence and a gate, but uh, like right on the other side of this long fence is this huge, gigantic UFO. They eventually see it when uh, after they head back outside, uh, they ended up, I think, shining their flashlight on it. And that's when this thing just kind of uh, came to life, all of these lights on it just lit up and also by this time their parents had uh woken up uh antonio moreno uh ebach and Teresa cruz de moreno they were now awake seeing that there was like so much activity going on in the house they could see these lights uh and you know yo lee yolanda and, and dora martina they're heading towards the railroad tracks and again the you know they're they're trying to rationalize what is going on here you know thinking that it was actually a truck with an employee that was driving up so uh dora was going to go up to this to the this uh large fence that had a, a a door, a gate door in it, and she was going to go up and and open it up. And that when she went up there, um, Yoli shown the flashlight uh, on this kind of like green light that they could see, like right there. And suddenly, six windows burst forth with light, illuminating a disc-shaped object that was hovering just off the ground, fourteen feet away from their home. Quote, it was a solid body some 28 to 30 feet in diameter, its surface appearing to be of metal resembling aluminum. It had a number of sections fitted together with protuberances that looked like rivets. And and I think that part of the description is interesting because most UFOs that people describe, they don't see like rivets or anything yeah. on it that seems like you know a solid structure but this thing looks like it's been you know uh riveted together yeah. yeah 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 uh and on the top of it it had a dome likewise of a metallic appearance but darker and with no rivets there were no emblems or markings on the object the small windows were rectangular about 35 inches by 25 inches and emitted a powerful white light the rest of the surface of the machine could not be seen because of a whitish mist coming out of its lower extremity. From the dome to the bottom of the windows, the distance was about eight to 10 feet. And from the bottom 
of the windows to the ground was only another five feet. The machine was rocking gently to and fro, but not revolving on its axis. It was quite clearly not resting on the ground. So um, this object is pretty big. And to be that close to my house, I would not be happy about that. That's just, yeah. I mean, it's like way, it's like way too close to the house. It is Mm -hmm. uncanny in every respect that it's like just sitting there, just kind of like rocking on this fog just above the ground. Mm -hmm. And then, but it's put together with rivets. So you don't, so it's kind of like almost like a signature of it being made by people along with the people inside that they saw previously looking like people right right so it's like this weird thing of like very uncanny very much not our normal type of technology anything that we know about or would expect but at the same time it's like these signifiers that oh we we just riveted it together with these people that are inside running it yeah and way too close for comfort and, and again, like when you look at this sketch, uh, this uh, layout, uh, the plans of this house, I just get uneasy looking at it every single time because, yeah, yeah, that that UFO is just it's right on the other side of that gate. You see the um, the tube like objects mm-hmm. um, a little, about 150 yards away from the house. Um, so they had a pretty good view of it um, when all that was going down. and uh there a lot more is going to start happening so through the through the windows they could see mm-hmm. this like band of lights that was coming uh to life inside the machine and they would rotate and the windows changed color in a slow sequence that made it seem like the actual object was spinning even though it wasn't it was just kind of rocking side to side which is again kind of unsettling to think about uh yep. that it would do that like because like the the picture that, that that comes into my mind is like uh that quintessential horror picture of someone who is like clearly crazy rocking themselves back and forth uh, that's the image i get in my head right now or even just like a like a boat mm-hmm. except for this is the air and there's no <laughs> yeah yeah. And even you know, and even that that big of a boat on that amount of even just water mm-hmm. would it would not work. So yeah, so it's very uncanny because it's kind of queuing into these things that are, but it, it does not work. I have to mention at this point, part of why this creeps me out is again getting to the whole like, why would this be for me? So I'm actually uh live about that close to a uh train track because i live in napa and we have the wine train that goes by um it's very close i mean you can sit in the house and hear the the train and the the horn going by it's a lot of fun uh sometimes the dogs will bark at it because it's <laughs> it's that close and i think about like my my dog oliver he's like a seven pounds barking at this huge <laughs> engine but the other thing that gets me about it being so close and you not knowing is that we're also in the path of a flight of hot air balloons that they fly for yeah. the tourists. Yep. And they're they're really big and they're incredibly silent. And I'll have the experience more than once of um, you'll be outside in the morning and you'll have no idea. And then all of a sudden you'll hear it, the flare of the gas. 
or you'll happen to see it. And this thing is just like right there and you had no idea. Yeah. That's Which, unsettling. <laughs> it is. And yeah. some of us will be like, like low and just behind the houses or sometimes they'll get like uh, close down here. We're like way too close because they're on fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I, I have, you know, then you take pictures so you can complain to the city. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but um, I love them, but they're but it's very creepy when you don't. It's like something's like this huge fire breathing dragon, essentially craft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have no idea it's there. So um, I like that that aspect. I thought that they and like you say, especially if you look at that the map of the uh, the house and everything and the the hen coop, um, it really gives you a feeling for uh, what they were observing and how close everything was, and it's so creepy. I mean, yeah. even just seeing something like this, like a couple football fields away would be creepy. Oh, yeah. Uh, like new fears are being ignited <laughs> in my brain. And uh, I'm sure the morning walks to work at 2.30 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning will not be affected at all. Uh, you know, it's it's totally fine. <laughs> but it, again, it gets to these these witnesses I think they're uh, very brave and yeah. uh, really kept their head and uh, looked at the whole um, at the time in the moment. And then afterwards, you could tell that they're uh, really taking kind of a analytical view to their experience, um, which really adds a lot to, I think they noticed a lot of very interesting uh, details about everything that went on, which makes us a very captivating report. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, and I think that's what, um, I think that's what made even like um, Kenneth Arnold's sightings so special uh, is that like the whole time while he was observing everything in the air, he's doing his best to like measure everything, you know, mm-hmm. from the size of the object to how fast it was going to, you know, anything that he could think of, you know, so much going so far as to hold up like the fast, like a fastener that he had that kind of keeps the skin on his plane and just like yeah i'm gonna eyeball it here and, and measure it and like yeah i i, I have a, a a certain respect for witnesses that just like come at you with so many details that like your eyes glaze over and you just love <laughs> it you know <laughs> no it's it's fascinating and um and I think, uh, you know, some people are naturally inclined that way. But then if you um, let's say if you're an amateur astronomer or you're a bird watcher, or like, like, you know, you've had training flying or something that you're kind of trained to make certain observations as part of your hobby or your job, um, then it can uh, come in really handy at, at times like this. You see something very unusual. You have more the presence of mind and the tools to make some uh, observations that could be useful later. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this object was, you know, it was producing this white mist and it started to get thicker and thicker and and it gave off this sulfurous odor, which, you know, kind of gets your like, you know, demon vibes going here, you know, sulfurous odors and, and such. Um, it's, uh, I, I, it's, it's too much. Uh, I don't want anything sulfurous, like, near me at any time it's it smells terrible and (laughs) you know that's just spreading all over the place it's terrible Mm. um but they also kind of seem to be mesmerized by this object a little bit and uh because they just kind of stood and stared at it and 
like there was this sudden burst of flame that brought them back into reality and it and it uh you know pushed them back about six feet uh according according to them um but uh dora martina because she had moved closer uh was later treated for first and second degree burns on her face arms and legs uh, which is yeah that's, that's right that's, that's severe yeah it's intense like first and second degree burns like even uh, uh it's I, I didn't get a full gauge on how close she got i don't know if she made it to the gate door before she uh yoli sign uh shine the flashlight on it but uh just being closer yeah this is uh this is some serious res- stuff and in response to the flames from the one three more sets of lights came to life coming from the railway line at different points along it um and they could all you know them outside they could see these points of light that were uh, coming from the the railway line and the band of lights inside the object uh, seemed to increase moving faster and faster. And the mist just continued to pour out of it, enveloping the object completely to the point where none of the structure was visible anymore from the windows in Argentina's room. The Moreno parents kind of saw everything from that vantage point. And a tube of light came from the top of the object, performing what they presumed to be kind of a scan of the house. They just saw uh, from the top of it, the the dome on the top, just this light that, yeah, just kind of seemed to be like, I don't know, scanning its... Uh, scanning the structures around it and stuff. And from two rooms away uh, in the room Yolanda had shared with her sister Yoli, uh, they saw two beams of light projecting from one of the objects on the tracks. And it was, and, and the way that they describe it is just super creepy because it moves incredibly slowly uh, and it stops just short of a shed next to the house. They said it took like minutes to make it there, like the slow creeping beam that it never quite touched the ground. It kind of uh, just like hovered above it a little bit, um, like three or four inches or so. And this tube of light, it remained there for approximately 40 minutes. That's excessive, you know, (laughs) it's too much. It is. And it's so weird too, because it's like, even if you just see something briefly that seems to uh, invalidate what you know about how the world works, it's enough to throw you off. But then you get this thing, and it's like you know that this is not how light behaves, mm. but it's just doing it for over half an hour, whether you like it or not. So the real question here now is, do these aliens have lightsabers? Because <laughs> right. Well, it seems pretty apparent they do. Yes, they they have somehow been able to stop, you know, light from moving forward. So uh, it's clear they have the lightsabers. And if Star Wars had been out at this time, it would be a totally different game changer. Uh, I I'm blowing my mind with these revelations right now. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too, that. Because you know that if you had, uh, if they'd made these uh, exact same observations, given the same account after Star Wars came out, everyone would have been just, oh, sure, patted them on the head, 
you know, obviously they just saw Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, Lucas is, is yep. on notice now. Yeah, that's right. But it gives yeah. you this like very precise behavior and parameters of what this light was doing, which then you can go uh, later and, uh, you know, look to advances in technology or what we know about lightness behavior and stuff and kind of see if you can map it onto anything. I I always think of, um, I think it's in Dimensions, Dimensions, I'm trying to speak more clearly by uh, Jacques Vallée. Yeah. Trying not to say, you know, that guy, Jacques Vallée. <laughs> you may have heard of him. You may know of him. <laughs> you listen to this podcast, possibly. So, <laughs> in Dimensions, he talks about some historical cases of strange lights in the sky. And one of the ones he talks about um, is in Japan, I think, in mm-hmm. like the Middle Ages of Japan. Anyway, these people are saying it, there was an object in the sky and it was glowing like a ceramic vessel that's in a kiln being uh, fired. Yeah. And what was what was interesting to me about that is that um and I don't know the name for it but that is a particular type of radiation like it's a particular type of light being emitted when you are firing ceramics in a kiln. It's mm-hmm. like it's a different type of radiation like the sun makes a particular type of radiation an incandescent light bulb makes a particular type of the light has a signature of this particular type of radiation versus a fluorescent light and so on. So I was thinking, you know, people, it's kind of like they could say, well, you know, it's just because they didn't know any better. I'm thinking, well, no, maybe that could tell us something about what was happening there. If it had, you know, what are the characteristics, the type of chemical uh, processes that generate this particular form of light mm-hmm. or radiation. Right. But I, uh, that made me think of uh, this incident as well, because they're, and, and further on, they talk some more about some of the qualities of light. And I thought these type of specific observations that, um, you know, this could be a clue as to, to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And Yoli herself believed that this tube of light was actually composed of water. Uh, I'm not really that's sure. Trippy. Yeah, that's very true. That's very trippy because like, it doesn't say that they describe it as like, you know, like flowing or anything like that. But that's the kind of impression that I get is that it, maybe you think like, I don't know, there's some like flow to it or something like that. And she thrust her hand inside of yep. this beam of light, uh, but she found that it wasn't really wet. Uh, instead, it was like an intense kind of heat, but it didn't really hurt her uh, at all. Um and then she just kind of pulled her hand away and, and ran back inside uh, very quickly. Um, the patriarch of the family desperately wanted to go out there to investigate, but his daughters held him back while his wife prayed. They, yep. too, saw the slow-moving beams of the light creeping along outside the window, and they described it as a 10-foot cylindrical tube of white light. Uh, another beam of light emerged from another object further along the track and it extended a shorter distance, but uh, could be seen slowly approaching a chicken coop where it stopped just shy and remained there stationary for a few minutes. And they could, yeah, no, no, go ahead. No, here's the thing. Cause I keep looking at this and um, there's kind of like the technical aspect and then the mythic aspect of these 
manifestations or where these things happen because right because all this um activity is happening along this uh railway track and this road Mm -hmm. so we have um like travel between dimensions or between wherever the other place and here is happening along roads and train tracks yeah which you think why would this be you can say uh it could be that the because of course there's certain uh geomagnetic uh properties associated with uh train tracks um all that metal which is true and that could have an aspect as well but the, mythically it's like um communication uh between the realms is ruled for like by like uh, hermes uh, mercury and he is um you know the god of travelers and roads uh boundaries and the thing is you think you know yeah sure whatever this is a little bit cliche but i was reading about because i've had some uh intense uh dreams about him recently and uh one of his sacrifices would be like a cock or a rooster and this one light beam coming from the interesting <laughs> going to the the chickens interesting that there is there are see yeah. he's also he uh uh hares would be a sacrifice to him and um Stephen uh Miles uh, Smiles Lewis of the Anomaly Archives has written up a couple of different um things one in particular about how you define this one it's a, it's a wild case two sisters who are inside the house young young women and they're kind of out in the country and they are being uh like menaced or feel like they're being uh stalked or they are prey of a UFO that is outside of the house there I believe there are two young sisters at home alone um and then uh there was a uh, a bunch of rabbits there and they really I think especially the one sister was really feeling like almost this kind of like a emotion meld with the rabbits in terms of just being the prey of this UFO yeah and so, but then again with rabbits and hares again sacred to Hermes so but that's that's so weird because you would think yeah on the one hand you'd think well this could be completely prosaic because they're attracted to the middle of the train tracks mm-hmm. but then there's also this kind of uh symbolic aspect too that's very weird yeah absolutely um so there was also this kind of light that was flooding into the farmhouse itself and the temperature rose uh above 40 degrees celsius or about 104 degrees um and when the the children woke up the next morning they were apparently all drenched in sweat so uh it was you know ufos like uh, we're cool with the heating bill let's take it easy you know (laughs) no that's Uh, really that's really hot you know yeah, that's that's a bit much, you know. And that's the type of thing where you're starting to wonder when it's happening. It's like, okay, how far are they going to take us? Because you know, sitting here all these years later, we know what happened. But yeah, I mean, uh, Dora, she severely burned. You don't, yeah, I can imagine being scared shitless, and for good reason because you have who knows where it's going to go or what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the matriarch of the family Teresa claimed that a shadow had passed in front of the window in her bedroom which uh she watched many of the events through but uh 
she it wasn't sure like maybe it was a hallucination or something but like that aspect kind of terrified me a little bit because like it's a nondescript shadow i don't know if it's like a you know a figure of someone passing in front of the house or or exactly what that is but uh anytime someone says a shadow passed in front of my window i am not a fan but no, that's I don't mean. <laughs> no no um so they continue to watch in terror as this, uh, as the object uh, closest to the house, uh, the object Yoli referred to as La Nave Madre or the mothership, uh, because it was larger than the other ones that they could see on the tracks. It projected this uh, slow moving beam of its own toward the town of Trancas at one point. Uh, and over the course of 10 to 15 minutes, it reached the outskirts of town. And then it retreated back to the object next to, uh, to their home, which uh, then moved in the direction of the railway line. Uh, and the other objects joined the larger one. And together they moved off toward the Sierra uh, de Medina mountain range. And following the craft's departure, the Moreno family stepped outside where the cloud that engulfed the mothership was still there and remained there for four hours. That's too much. That's too long. Like, how on. And, and the thing, because, you know, I live in uh, California here in the Central Valley and a lot of places we have, we get these Thule fogs, mm-hmm. which are like in low-lying areas. And we get a lot of advection fog too. Um, rolling in from the coast and so you know everyone's thinking about fog all the time because especially the tule fog is weird uh, in in the central valley because it's a a radiation fog so basically it's like when the ground gets saturated and then it's at the right temperature then suddenly this fog just i mean it doesn't even roll in for it just kind of like appears manifests everywhere in these low spots and um so when you're in it 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 can get it can cause very severe accidents because, I mean, suddenly you won't be able, I mean, depending upon how bad it is, you might not be able to see 10 feet. So if you're going along the highway at 50 miles an hour or more, it can be very bad. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so it was like weird. It's like the, the, the you know, uh, meteorological, that was the word I was looking for, conditions <laughs> would have to be very stable for a long time for that type of you know fog if it was you know kind of that type of fog as opposed to you know whatever the hell else it was to just be Mm -hmm. hanging around there for that long yeah yeah absolutely um and the next day in the same area they Mm -hmm. uh discovered uh that where this craft had hovered a perfect 30 foot diameter circle that was filled with half inch white balls uh, and more of those would actually be uh, found on the railway lines as well. And samples were sent to the Institute of Chemical Engineering at the University of Tucumán, uh, where Walter uh, Gonzalo uh, Tell did an analysis of them, which showed that they were composed of calcium carbonate, about 96.48%, and uh, potassium carbonate, 3, 3.51%. The trees closest to the craft seemed to have withered a bit, uh, and they did use fertilizer on them, and they did regain some ability to grow, but not quite the same uh, as they had. 
And from this article, um, they were able to find additional eyewitnesses to some of this stuff. Uh, quote, at 10.30 p.m. the same night, Senora Yoli Moreno went across to the house of their neighbor, Senor Francisco Tropiano, which lies about 100 yards to the north of the Moreno residence. She asked him whether he had noticed anything strange during the last few minutes. An object had been directing its solid beams right at Senor Tropiano's house. But Senor Tropiano said he had neither felt nor seen anything as he had been fast asleep. All that he was able to do was confirm the presence of the orange glow, which still persisted in the east. Still bent on gathering additional details about the phenomenon, the Morenos questioned the overseer of their farm, Senor Jose Acosta, whose house lies to the west of theirs at a distance of 100 yards or so. But on the other side of an irrigation ditch, Acosta's own first question to them was why the field had been on fire, as he had seen that it was lit up to the east of his house. And, and I think what's interesting here is that uh, there's another case from Aveyron, France in the 60s. can't remember the exact date, but the first witness to the specific phenomenon, which this family would have multiple sightings of these kind of like globes, these kind of big balls of light that would just kind of roll around their property and stuff like that. The grandmother uh, on this property said that uh, she first thought that um, the property was on fire and then she went to bed. Like, yes, like that apathy is just it's always incredible when you read about it, because it's just like, why would you go to bed if you thought your farm was on fire? Well, that's this is like a, a weird synchronicity I had like many, many years ago, uh, kind of surrounding uh, Mike Cleland of Hidden Experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is way back before he'd ever published a book or anything. And he was talking about some of his own experiences. And he had a one, I believe it was when he was a kid where he um, had seen uh, like a, a line of grays, I don't know, it was like three or four coming towards him in a, from outside yes, and he yeah. saw them and he was terrified. And then he's like, and then I went to sleep. Yep. So he'd written about that. And um, it was on my mind. And within the next few days, I had a book. I think it was one of Heineck's books or something on UFOs or flying saucers, I think, in the title anyway. Mm-hmm. And I went to get a new, ba- a new band put on my watch. And so I go into this jeweler's at downtown Walnut Creek. And the uh, jeweler is there. And he looks at me and we say a couple things. And he said, oh, that book. He said, and I said, yeah, he's like, about flying saucers. I'm like, yeah. And he actually, he was from uh, Central or South America. And he said, you know, when I was little, I saw them. I saw the the gray, the aliens. And he said, I remember I was in my bed. I was little. And I saw them outside my door. And I said, and then I knew in my head, it's time to go to sleep. So I went to sleep. So he told me the same thing. (laughs) That was on my mind from Mike's blog. Oh, this God. guy I'd never met before <laughs> just because I've been carrying around it. So that always stuck in my mind. I don't know that I've personally ever had that type of um, experience. Usually when I have the feeling of another presence, 
which has happened to me uh, on numerous occasions, like in my bedroom or something. It'll usually like I'll be woken woken up in the middle of the night and I'll be really awake. Mm -hmm. But then usually my sense is that it is uh, humans as opposed to uh, non-humans. I've never. I don't think I've ever had like any type of contact with like a being associated with a flying saucer or UFO thing or bright light mm. in the sky. Yeah. But um. Yeah. Hey, you want another really weird synchronicity then? Me? Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Cleland and and his partner Andrea, their yeah. bed and breakfast. It's in my hometown. <laughs> there you go. Uh yeah, because yeah. uh. Yeah, he's he his stories always freak me out, but you know, that he, is that is what it is. <laughs> yeah, well, he's the first person who ever published a synchronicity of mine on his blog because he was talking about a, a dream that he had, and it reminded me of a, a synchronicity that I had with a hummingbird. Um, and uh, so I, I just wrote it to him, and he's like, "Oh, can I put put this on my blog?" So, so yeah, yeah, he's really uh, I admire him a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Because he's, you know, he has all these great stories and he manages to to write them up and he's very insightful and everything. But what really gets me is he's uh he's very kind and open hearted and sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He absolutely is. Yeah. Um Mr. Acosta here, he had he'd seen this, you know, saying he had seen this field on fire, uh, you know, seeing that it was lit up to the east of the house. He added that. He had, quote, amused himself watching numerous bright objects, which were moving about for a considerable period of uh, of the uh, of the westward, indicating that he had seen additional objects that the Moreno family didn't or hadn't. Uh, and this another is another thing. This is another yeah. thing, because, um, of course, Napa, we've had all these incredible firestorms that everyone has seen, all this crazy stuff the last few years. If you're living anywhere where fires are a thing, the last thing you're going to do is sit on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> you think there's a fire anywhere near you, yeah. which is like, so, cause I mean, it sounds, it sounds crazy enough, but then if you've actually lived through that, I mean, you're just basically shitting yourself. <laughs> Panicking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially, I can't imagine, you know, being out there, um, you know, cause we, I mean, it's bad enough for us. We live just like a couple blocks from a literal fire station full of big, fire guys and i live in a uh, a uh, 55 plus active living community so those guys know the way here <laughs> and they're I, I admire them a lot they've always been fantastic they're great um but yeah i mean especially like you're living out in the country by yourself there's like there's no that's completely unusual behavior you're not going to be sitting around no twiddling your thumbs no, you will not be a victim of the apathy. Uh, yeah, so obviously there's there's an altered state of consciousness happening. Yes. Uh, another piece of unpublished testimony came from a lady physician, Dr. Renee Vera, doctor at the Trancas Hospital, which lies just outside of Trancas. On the night in question, her car broke down as she was driving towards Trancas. So she decided to finish the journey on foot. The time was about 11 p.m. when she saw coming flying over from west to east or rather slightly towards northeast. A squadron of 40 or 50 luminous bodies which passed overhead at low altitude. They left the whole atmosphere. Uh, and this is interesting, given just like how we've talked about this. Uh, they left the whole atmosphere impregnated 
with the smell of sulfur to such a degree that she was almost made ill by it. No, sulfur, uh, sulfurous fog is a thing and it can, it can, uh, it can damage your lungs Yeah, because, um, the place that I used to live to be before, uh, we get these really strong sulfur smells. And one time I called the, the fire department because, <laughs> because it was so bad. I was like, what's going And they said, um, it, no, it's just like certain areas that have a lot of sulfur in the ground and, and springs and stuff. If you yeah. get like a, 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 like kind of a layer of uh, air that's just setting there and then it's coming up, it, it can get to a big concentration. They think, cause I, I felt like an idiot for calling them because I was like, well, it's just, and I thought for your, well, it's just a natural thing. And they're like, no, no, you should call because it can actually um, damage people's lungs. You know, you can get into big breathing problems with it. So um, yeah, I mean, that's a really incredible confirmation observation they were able to find from this uh, doctor. Mm-hmm. But then also her talking about how, how sick she felt from it. It seems like the sulfur is really present. And then all these um, weird calcium balls all over the place. That's just really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this incident was related to the Morenos by Dr. Renee Vera herself along. Uh, after the press reverberations of their own story had died away, she had not wanted to report it at that time out of fear mm-hmm. of the usual ridicule that she would have incurred. And I mean, she's a doctor, so it's kind of not surprising uh, in yeah. that way. Um According to Yoli Moreno, she was made to fill out a technical questionnaire for the Argentine Navy, as well as a test for the Pentagon, which is <laughs> very yeah. interesting. But like we like in certain uh, South American UFO cases, you know, I, I think Virginia comes to mind. Um uh, and I think there was uh, there was that crash in Mexico in the 60s or something like that. I can't even remember what the name of the incident is, but it's like uh, U.S. military is involved. It's always weird when the U.S. military is somehow involved in that, but it kind of isn't out of the realm of possibility here. So, you know, yeah. Um she she was of uh, Yoli Moreno was of the idea that this was actually a terrestrial craft uh, because of the rivets that were on it. Yeah. So that makes sense. I, I I totally see where she's coming from. You know, joining the long line of people like you know Stefan Mikulak, for instance, who you know walked up to a UFO and <laughs> called out saying, "Hey, you Yankee boys, are you having trouble? Let's uh, figure it out." <laughs> I know so the, the the friendliest of uh, UFO witnesses. No, I just love that because he's just like kind of going up like it's ah yeah blah blah blah, and then suddenly yeah he got uh, hit with the it's like the fairy blast or when the shamans hit you with the the shaman bone or something. Um, yeah, or you know for for a, a relatable way to put it, the UFO farted on him and it was terrible. You know. Yes. <laughs> Well, it is weird because this whole thing, it seems very much like a, like a chemistry experiment. Yeah. The whole, uh, Chonkis incident, um, with, uh, uh, the lights and, and the, 
clouds. It seems like something that like a physics physics or chemistry professor would would do for the class to try and explain some principle to you and then look afterwards. Oh, you see all the calcium carbonate, and all the potassium, whatever has precipitated out because of this chemical reaction, but there were mm -hmm. rivets on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really trans-dimensional, yeah, like, you know? Uh yeah, and like, you know, UFOs leaving all their crap around, it's terrible. Like yeah. clean up after yourselves. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But um yeah, I I so do we know if they had any on because since we're talking synchronicities do we have any reports from the witnesses afterwards um or, or the family uh about any like sometimes people have like ongoing poltergeist stuff or weird synchronicities uh telepathy uh premonition dreams uh missing time amnesia weird things alternate landscapes not really that i could think Religious of mania yeah there was nothing there was no other additional information and in like a lot of the um there there was a blog that i came across like a couple years ago that i wasn't able to find when i was trying to put this <laughs> together that um i think it talked to the witnesses like you know 40 50 years later or something like that <laughs> uh, i don't think there was anything significant in there but uh, i didn't see any you know additional contacts or anything like that because like it's just so random like hey here's a here's a farm ranch out in the middle of nowhere let's just fuck with them why not yeah uh, it's yeah it's just like let's put on this incredible intense display with a lot of uh witnesses confirming witnesses a lot of um I don't want to say this that's a lot of uh, physical uh, evidence or impact between uh, Dora Martina and uh, all the weird calcium potassium balls on the floor, on the floor, on the ground, bombs <laughs> <laughs> of the trees. So, um, yeah, it's it's, you know, a big bad sighting and a lot of information about uh, the light and the motion and stuff, but it still is very enigmatic um yeah i don't you get these things and it's just like they say it's like this huge big deal and it has these big uh kind of uh themes that really tie in with uh the ufo uh lore or mythos overall but at the heart of it there is uh, again this mystery and it, it, i don't know it's one of those ones that i personally i would really like to know more about what possibly went on i complete let me tell you i completely understand why people don't yeah because <laughs> especially here uh you know these people are very uh educated and brave and forthright and um they've given very uh clear accounts of what exactly they experienced with excellent observations um so you're not going to want to talk about if you have like you know poltergeist stuff afterwards or other weird shit um you don't want to start digging yourself into a lack of credibility hole after you've gone to all this trouble to be uh so clear about your experience so i really can't ding anyone for it but i would love to know because um partly because um this incident happened the better part of, like almost about 60 years ago and i know this because 
Of course, my brother's only a year younger than I am. Um, later on, they mention a couple of dates in this article. Uh, that one is three days after I was born, right? May, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out myself now. May 12th, 1962, I was born on May 9th. Um, so it was kind of like there's this whole kind of, uh, I want to say, like charisma or like a meaning vortex. Mm-hmm. around this incident that is like reverberating out all this time later when we dive into it right because right. i started right. sending you some of these synchronicities not all of which we're going to get into but one of them was i was like oh and then later on there's this other date and it always reminds me of my sister because it's kind of uh, related to her and my birthday together blah 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 and that that's when i wrote these synchronicities up i was just like oh and so blah blah that was interesting that this was in here and you said well that's my birthday <laughs> yeah it is my, bir- my birthday's may 6th so yeah yeah <laughs> and uh yeah so and it's and then we started having some other things that um i don't know if we want to get it <laughs> i hate this when you have the really good ones it's like right i don't know if people want to get this but i had mentioned um that uh uh may 9th my birthday i was born on john brown's birthday the abolitionist and i guess that you live quite near yeah in the uh in the town of north Uh elba uh which Uh is right it's right outside of lake placid um Uh so uh really as you're you know if i I can picture this in my head uh as you're driving towards lake placid if you kind of like veer right and you keep driving towards the town of north elba what you will come across is that there is a uh john brown used to own a farm up uh in my neck of the woods uh and he would uh he opened it up uh to black people to come up and kind of like learn you know farming techniques and stuff like that he actually called it timbuktu um yeah uh and he was given that property he was sold that property by another abolitionist that i can't remember the name of but uh yeah he just uh passed it on to him but it is a you know historical site uh in north elba yeah and uh it's kind of funny too because um we're riffing on this whole kind of like birthday and the connection there because uh, a woman uh, who is uh, buried here in Napa in Tulake Cemetery, uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant, she's known as the mother of civil rights in California. And um, she was a black woman who passed as white in California until after the civil war in which, and then she came out and said, yes, actually I am black. Um, she had been uh, making money and, uh, then she started really pushing for uh, civil rights legislation in California, but she was also a benefactress of John Brown and helped fund his uh, activities. He was uh, hanged, and after he was hanged, they uh, found a note in his pocket, and it was from her, actually. So mm-hmm. we have this this kind of um, place birthday connection between the two of us um and you know it went on to uh point to some other interests that we have in common um i I, which i don't think we want to get into but i have a a similar thing because because the thing that fascinates me about this is it's precise um but also has these more symbolic 
things about like the, you know, being near these um, sites of uh, abolitionists and, and civil rights people. Um, but the, it starts a long time ago. Uh, so I have an example where I can lay out more, if, if you like, how, how this type of thing can play out and how it's yeah. played out for me yeah, over, a long, over a long time. So uh, I was born in 1962, um, and uh, George Hansen, uh, the trickster and the paranormal guy, has found that there's a lot of uh, paranormal people and ufologists and stuff that were born in 1962. So I'm one of them at this point. Anyway, I went to college in the fall of 1980 at UC Santa Cruz. And at that time, um, I met uh, one of my classmates. He was older, a guy named Alex Angel. Alex, but with A-N-G-E-L-L. So the extra L on the end of Angel. And it's a great name. And he was just like a really sweet guy, uh, really smart, uh, really friendly and mellow. And he was like super good looking and very uh, kind of stylish, cool. Actually, uh, there's a couple old pictures of Jack Parsons, and he has very much that same look and kind of aesthetic. I mean, mm -hmm. like like that. I mean, you know, like that good looking and that cool and that charismatic. So we'd study together and stuff. And I, I was like, I still couldn't like figure out like why he wanted to study with me. But anyway, he was, he was very nice. And then I guess he had graduated. But I always remembered him because he was just um, he was just charismatic, but also just like a really sweet, nice guy. So I don't know, probably I don't know, like seven or eight years ago, I was listening. Actually, I think I was on Project Archivist. I was hearing uh, about the Alex cast. It's my friend now, Alex Bolin. And the first thing I noticed was he spells Alex with two X's. And I said, oh, that's kind of like Alex Angel. But instead of the two L's, it's the two X's. Mm -hmm. So I kind of associated him with him. We ended up uh, becoming friends. He's like a uh, podcaster and has uh writes like uh magical realist fiction uh it's very he's a chaos magician we've had some uh, we just had a really nice friendship and he has helped me a, a lot um because there's certain ideas that i want to get across um when i'm talking to people about uh para weird stuff um for example one time he had uh, me and uh, professor wham on to talk about spiritual friendship and what to you know look out for and, and look for um, when you're working with other people on spiritual esoteric issues so it was very important to me and he just uh like gave me uh all his resources of a podcast and helped me record that with wham so I, things like that i really appreciate and plus we have a very friendly uh, joking uh, relationship um, and then, I don't, know, I don't know, a few years ago, I met uh, David Metcalf online. He's mm. like, a, as it turns out, he's a much more prominent person. I felt attacked. I was just, he just became um, the uh, Windbridge uh, Virtual Scholar in Residence. And I wanted to make sure to get his title, his ceremonial title correct on the show but i was looking up at his his cv i was like oh this is a lot more extensive i should have been showing him some more respect over the years <laughs> he's a very nice very interesting talented uh, guy um but i, I always kind of linked him with alex for some reason i don't know but i always had them as like a pair in my mind mm -hmm. 
And uh, Metcalf has also helped me uh, over the years um, with some of the, you know, appearing on some podcasts with me to help pre uh, present some ideas that are important to me about synchronicity or um, uh, multidisciplinary approach in the paranormal. Um, and he's let me use uh, actually some of his male modeling work on my blog, which I appreciate. Um, but uh, I'd always kind of had him and Alex together and then come to find out, okay, they were uh, Alex and uh, David Metcalf were both born within two weeks in the fall of 1980. Within at the same time, basically, that I met Alex Angel. Mm -hmm. That's so, weird. That's yeah. Very weird. Yeah. And it goes back like 40 years. And on top of that, I have a dear friend from college. I actually met her the next year, my friend Mariana. She's an artist and uh, very mystically inclined as well. And uh, just more fun than a barrel of monkeys. Um, <laughs> and uh, she actually, her birthday is right around the same time that uh, she's my of my year, but within that same couple of weeks time as uh, Alex and David Metcalf. So these are the kind of ways that things can kind of come together where you have like all these these people that are uh, very similar you know we all have these like joking relationships and, and they're uh, people that really help me uh, in this aspect of my life but it's like kind of like this this one kind of uh, moment where it all came together i mean it just trips me out that i would be meeting alex angel at the same time that, that like these two guys are getting born right, <laughs> right. <laughs> be my friends later and the other weird thing about Alex Angel is, because I said, you know, he looks like kind of Jack Parsons and people who I have an interest in, in sex magic and erotic mysticism. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he ended up becoming a teacher at Berkeley High School and there was a big kerfuffle about him. I was looking him up online. There was a big kerfuffle about him a few years ago because he teaches history and he brought uh, a decommissioned bazooka uh, to school and he got suspended <laughs> a little bit but yeah it's yeah. a rocket launch it's a rocket launcher so you there you have the parsons thing right yeah yep the other thing that gets me is i'm always concerned with um synchronicities i feel like no one's going to believe me that these things actually happened and i was thinking how could i prove that i knew this because i haven't seen him in a ton of years i was thinking how could i have any proof that this story that I'm talking about knowing this guy at UC Santa Cruz would have any basis in reality. So I, I looked him up online and I found an article in the New York Times where he's talking about some business thing he's doing and it lists his age and it lists that he was at UC Santa Cruz. So it places him there when I would be there. And it cracked me up because it's like the paper of record <laughs> <laughs> saying yes. You're not full of shit and just spinning tails on this aspect of things. It's always good when some type of print media can prove you right and not that you're, you know, prove that you're not the crazy person that <laughs> I was you like, I may be crazy for thinking there's a connection, but this did actually happen in consensus reality. You know, where you want to go for the meaning is you know, beyond that. But I think in some of the, it was the weird thing too, is, you know, especially with the, like Alex Bowen, because it's like, I just, I just made that connection right away. It was before we ever became friends or anything. Um, and then, you know, when I met Metcalf, I'm like, I'm put, I just kind of put him in the same mental file 
as Alex. And like lots of times I'd like if I saw something that I thought that one of them would like, I, you know, like a picture or something, I'd send it to both of them because oh, these are two guys together. So it's but that's kind of how these things can kind of unfold where the um it's kind of like these uh like uh, birthdays or anniversaries or particular symbols are kind of like a clue to a uh, human relationship um get, getting back to my birthday since that seems to be the theme um i've had uh certain men that are very important to me in my life that have either uh been born or died around my birthday um i had a near-death experience i had chronic health issues through much of my life with breathing and stuff and the doctor uh who saved my life then and pulled my fat out of the fire many other times he was born on may 4th just 20 years before i was um so that's very close to my birthday and may 4th is also the day that alice went down the rabbit hole mm -hmm. um and then um two authors that are very important uh, important to me or have resonance for example uh, joe fisher of um richard haddam's writing about him the spirits he had the girlfriend from the medium i can't remember the name oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um the, oh the hungry siren song of the hungry yeah Ghost. The, the, yeah yep he died on my birthday uh, another very influential uh book for me is uh the harmonious circle by james webb which is about uh gurdjieff uh what he could find out about his biography and his main disciples or students um it's a fascinating book i've loved it for many decades he uh died on my birthday we had a um family friend when i was growing up who was an artist corbin lapel he went to school with bruce connor if people people know of uh the artist bruce connor um and I actually uh, grew up seeing a lot of like Bruce Connor's work in his house. And um, so I knew him from the time that, you know, we were little kids in elementary school and I actually ended up studying uh, art, uh, practical art with him in college for a while. Um, but he ended up dying May, on uh, May 10th, which is just the day after my birthday. When I was in my thirties, I spent some time living in a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center. Um, in uh, the East Bay, we had a Rinpoche there, and he had um, been born in Tibet. He was recognized as a Rinpoche at a young age. He fled to America and he ended up getting to California uh, within about a week of the time that I was born. So it's just interesting to me how you can have these um, things. And some of these, like, you know, James Webb, I've been a big fan of his uh, Harmonious Circle for probably well over 20 about 20 years now and only found out a uh, very recent like within the last several months that he died on my birthday so i don't know what it means but at a certain point you know it's gonna it's gonna attract your attention so yeah that's a lot uh that's a lot and and now and now i fit into that that <laughs> yes. circle <of> people <laughs> that's wild <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know we do have uh you know various interests and uh we've had some uh, some great conversations behind the scenes and uh yeah i don't know to me it's well it's like you were talking with uh ap strange on a, a couple of um shows and i i developed a friendship with him as well actually it's funny speaking of birthdays because um 
he at the beginning of the pandemic he was having some zooms that were just kind of like you know people to chat because they're all cooped up and uh so i went to one of the first ones that he had maybe it was the first one and i got there i was the first person in and i didn't really know anything about zooms but i happened to mention that it was my birthday because it was my birthday and he and pam uh his wife uh saying me happy birthday which i just thought was so sweet and so charming (laughs) um but yeah there's another birthday thing because we have a big uh shared interest in like surrealist art and the role of humor in the paranormal and art and the paranormal the overlap there Mm -hmm. um so it's interesting to me that you have these dates but they also point to these um very intense shared common interests yeah um because otherwise you know there's a you know you get enough people together and you're going to have some dates that come together um, as far as shared birthdays and stuff, I had a, a conversation once with a woman um, on a uh, sewing forum about that because we ended up sharing a birthday. And she's like, well, you know, it's the I guess it's like a 30 person rule. You have 30 people um, and then any and then in a room, let's say, and chances are that, any, that there will be two of them that share a birthday. And I'll make, yeah, there's a lot of people on this forum, but you know, we're how many people here, you know, we're actually like corresponding in meet space and sending each other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We're not just on the forum. (laughs) We have each other's phone numbers and physical addresses. So it's a little more. (laughs) That's how it happens, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I think partly what interests me about it too is the whole, it's like a very kind of a, like a, a male female dynamic going on right because mm-hmm. it's like the young the young women the young women who are capable of having babies go out there and confront this glowing sky <laughs> and, <the> one, <laughs> and all the rays just keep coming yeah more and more towards them. and then they're very i mean they get they're i don't there's very brave. They really confront it. I mean, mm-hmm. Yulia is putting her her arm right into this beam. Yeah. I mean, that's very that's, empirical, very curious. Very... That's bravery on a level that I don't think I would even come close to, uh, you know, sharing at any point uh i i'm just gonna say that i am never sticking my hand into any beams that are coming from a ufo it just seems like a bad idea but you know what that bravery there i respect the hell out of it i respect the hell out of all those ladies and uh yeah it definitely made like the the everything to do with this case is just absolutely like from like the the sim the symbolism in it to like just like the actual kind of like the 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 nuts and bolts within the symbolism it's amazing how that that kind of comes together into this like insane and unique ufo experience that i never really seen or heard of anything like it before or since you know yeah, because like sometimes you'll find like a precipitation of weird stuff or the vegetation will be affected or there'll be these light beams or they'll be confirmed. But it's like kind of all wrapped up into one. And I I have to respect the family as well, because um, even though I would love to know all the weird stuff that may or may not have happened around this, if we look at most cases, how it goes down, 
there was a lot of weird stuff around it that I would love to know, but I really respect them for keeping their privacy. And I think that like in our conversation today, that's why I keep fudging a lot of this stuff because um, for people to maintain their stability in the face of these type of events, you have to um, uh, ma- uh, maintain your dignity and, and kind of fight your battles, know yourself and the people around you. And if you just go full tilt into it and especially let your emotions get out of hand, if you hand over your own sense of dignity and privacy and um, personal ethics or emotional uh, well-being to other people or the press um, and set yourself up for that type of judgment, take that type of judgment on board, it is just going to ricochet because um, these type of events or UFOs, whatever they are, seem to really potentiate psi and emotion and symbolic content. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that may be in part their purpose, like a uh, subtle or uh, partly material machine for potentiating uh, like mythic imagery yeah, and propagating it into the shared uh, psychosphere. But yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I think about that. Even just people who are just like not particularly out there as experiencers, but just kind of like to present themselves as straight researchers and stuff, I'll notice that they'll um, not want to talk about certain things or withdraw at certain times or not want to. And I, I think, and I've confirmed this to some people that it's just to, to keep things from blowing up, you kind of have to manage. Actually, I wrote a, a it wasn't me. I have a Uh, post on my blog called Managing Magical Reality, and it's an anonymous guest contributor, and they wrote about how they manage things themselves. Mm. And I think for everyone that this is part of of what we uh, do as we're engaging with this material, and we see like an event like this, you know, 60 years ago, could still kind of have these ricochets with people in the present day. So, um, I, I try and uh, bear that in mind and not be too, uh, you know, not press people too much mm-hmm. because they may have very good reasons for wanting to kind of, you know, yeah. put things down. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, so it was synchronicities that brought us here and, yes. <laughs> and has made for just an absolutely fantastic episode. So uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, talking about this in, in insane case and uh, just bringing a unique perspective to it. So uh, where could people follow along with what you got going on and, and especially your blog? Because your blog's fantastic. Thank you. It's uh, stephaniequick.home.blog is the address. Uh, the name of it is Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. And I have... Mm-hmm. Um, my blogs, articles, and then I have a, a contact information and then a bunch of podcasts and video things there if people want to delve in. So yeah, that's probably the the one place, one-stop shopping. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the one-stop shop for everything Stephanie Quick. You can find it there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, as for the Our Strange Guys podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. Uh, And if you'd like to help us out, please leave a rating and review on the platforms that allow it and tell your friends about us uh, and all the amazing pods that you enjoy listening to. Uh, And if you want to support us monetarily, 
head on over to patreon.com slash your UFO guy for $3 a month. You get early access to the episodes like this one. And uh, there's also some uh, Patreon bonus episodes that we have over there and special thanks to floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast and to Megan Lagerberg for our fantastic logo and to the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on your family's ranch in Argentina in gray. We trust. Yeah.